Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Last week we... All right. Last week we read the story of the parting of the Red Sea and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that's God's manifest presence with his people. And we saw him show his power over the enemies of Egypt um, and Pharaoh and Egypt giving glory to God through their destruction, through his judgment. But today, we're on the other side of the Red Sea. We're on the other side of slavery. God's people, Israel, have just been saved from their enemy Egypt. They've been saved from their oppression under Pharaoh. They've been redeemed They've been set free from bondage. They've been brought into the fulfillment of God's promises. They have been delivered. They've witnessed God move mightily on their behalf. They've seen his power and his judgment and his compassion. And God has revealed himself to them. And so what is their response? We see on the screen the the title of this message is New Life for the Redeemed. But we want to see what does it look like to, to live as a redeemed person? What does it afford us? What does it not mean? Maybe there's some, um, some misconceptions about what does it mean to be a follower of God? What things are you able to do, not able to do, that sort of thing. So there's a couple of things I want us to see. First, um, we see that God's redeemed respond in worship. So God has shown himself to his people. He's revealed his power to them. He's revealed his might to them. And now on the other side of the Red Sea, the right response of God's people is worship. So pick up with me in Exodus chapter 15. We're gonna read the first 21 verses. This is the song of Moses. It says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone." 
till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray that this morning would be a time where we can gather, open your word, hear your truth, and be transformed by it. That we would be encouraged to worship, to respond rightly when you show yourself to your people. God, you are worthy of our praises. You're worthy of our honor. You're worthy of our singing. You're worthy of lives that are lived in faithfulness. And as we'll see, Lord, we do this in a broken, immature way. It's hard for us to obey. It's hard for us to follow you. But thanks be to God, someone has obeyed on our behalf perfectly. So Lord, I pray that we would see that even when you chastise and discipline, as we walk in faithfulness as your redeemed people, you are the one who gives us every good and perfect gift. So Lord, we pray that that again would draw our hearts in to worship you all the more because you are worthy and you are good. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so Israel has walked through the Red Sea. They have just witnessed the destruction of the armies of Egypt, Pharaoh and his chariots, and their response is to sing. Now that may not be like, your natural response, but think about it like this. Think about like, um, at least when I was in high school, when there was like a big football game, right? Or maybe you go to an Auburn game and you experience this. If it's a, a big game, a tough game, something that you don't know whether or not you're gonna win and you come out at the last minute and you score that touchdown, your team scores that touchdown and they win the game, what is the response of the crowd? What is the response of the audience? They they yell, they scream, they, they make noise. And oftentimes that noise turns into song, right? There are songs and chants that we sing for our schools and we just really can't help it. It becomes this kind of natural response when something wonderful takes place in our favor, when something wonderful takes place that we notice, we respond in a way that people can hear. Singing is appropriate. And when God does something amazing, it's right and good to praise him. I mean, think about Adam and Eve, right? In creation, before the fall, God creates Adam and he shows Adam all of the animals and says, it's not good that you're alone. I wanna make a, help, a helper suitable for you, fit for you. And so he shows them all the animals of creation and, and not a suitable helper is found. And so... God puts Adam to sleep and creates Eve out of his rib. And what does Adam do? You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter two, verse 23, and you can check this for yourself sometimes, but 
You know, sometimes in the, in the Bible, when it's poetic or when it's a song, it won't look like the block text. It'll look like poetry. It'll actually visibly change the, the style of the writing. Verse 23, after Adam sees Eve for the first time, it says, then the man said, in song, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam can't help but to sing to his wife. He can't help but to respond in song. And Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus to sing as well. This should be the normal rhythm of life for believers together. So just listen to uh, Ephesians in chapter five, verses 18 through 21. As Paul is telling the church how they ought to live together in regular rhythms, he writes, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, in, in this description that Paul is giving of how Christians ought to interact with one another, he weaves in this truth. You should be singing. You should be worshiping. You should be praising the Lord. So when God moves, when God reveals himself, when we think of him, it's good to worship. It's good to sing. It's good to respond in praising him. But how does Israel worship here in Exodus 15? And how is that maybe instructive for us as people who have also been redeemed, who have also been brought out of our oppression and slavery, who have also been brought out of the grip of our enemy First, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you a couple of things we see in this little chapter. First, Moses and the people of Israel sing. It's not Moses doing this on behalf of everyone. No, everyone is involved. This is a corporate event. So some of you, uh, you may feel embarrassed or you may feel like uncomfortable or out of place with the idea that you would be singing with a group of people. And maybe you think, oh, no, 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 I do that on my own. Like I have some time where I, I worship the Lord privately. It may look a little bit different, but you know, I do that. Well, private worship is great. Private worship is wonderful. But we as the body of Christ must gather together and participate in worship. So if you're just standing there on Sunday morning, like if you're standing there in about an hour and a half and everyone around you is singing the song and you're not singing the song, you're not involving yourself in the praises of God, not only are you missing something, but so are we. Like we will miss you not participating. The body will miss one of its members not functioning properly, right? If I broke my finger, it's not a very big part of my body, but I will notice Right? When I go to grab something or when somebody smacks my hand or squeezes it too hard with a handshake, I will notice when it's not functioning properly. In the same way, we will miss out when you don't participate. So let that be an encouragement to you. That this isn't a grade, it's not something that you're going to be uh, judged on, it's an opportunity for you to see that you are involved in the life of this body, you're involved in the life of this church. So Moses and the people of Israel sing. Second, Moses and Israel sing of what God has saved them from. 
They, they sing about what God has saved them from. They recount what just happened. They use their worship as a reminder of God's power and faithfulness in their lives in the past. And when you and I sing, we can do the same. Oftentimes, the songs that we sing remind us of history. They remind us of what God has done. They remind us of how God has saved us. These past events that will help us to trust him in the present. So we sing of what God has saved us from, just like Moses and Israel. Third, Moses and Israel sing of who God is. They sing of who God is. Not only are they talking about singing about what he has done, but they're singing about who he is as God. Look again at verse 11 in Exodus 15, right in the middle of this song. It says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Students, there is no one like the Lord. There is no one like the God of Scripture. He stands above all creation. His attributes are perfect in him alone. And when you and I worship, we call to mind and sing out truths about who he is. He's wonderful. He's glorious. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's just. He's loving. He's omnipotent. He can do all things. He's sovereign over all creation. He's omniscient. He knows everything about us and yet loves us in spite of ourselves. He's omnipresent. He is with us all the time, no matter what. Where shall I run from your spirit, the psalmist says. When we sing these truths about who God is, it reminds us and internalizes in our hearts truth about God. And when we inform our minds and our hearts truth about who God is, over time, it will whittle away perhaps some lies that we believe about God. When I sing the scripture, when I sing biblical truth about who God is, that he is for me and not against me, that he is compassionate, that he's not mean, he's not capricious, he's not trying to punish me or get on to me for the sake of getting on to me, but that he's loving me and proving me through discipline, that he's sanctifying me in truth. As I sing these things among brothers and sisters who also believe these things, it will start to make the lies that I might believe about God not being for me or not caring about me or not being faithful, they will become smaller and smaller and smaller. So we sing about who God is. But fourth, Moses and Israel sing of what God has saved them to. So not only does Moses and Israel sing about what God has saved them from, they sing about what he has saved them to. Two, and in the same way, you and I have been saved from sin, from death, from the wrath of God, from an eternity separate from him in hell. But that's not the whole story. God did not just save Israel from Egypt. He saved them to himself. So look again at verses 17 and 18. Pharaoh is no longer their ruler. Pharaoh is no longer their king. Look at verse 17. It says, you will bring them in, that is Israel, and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. 
God is now their king. And he will reign and they will live in his presence, in his sanctuary. They are now citizens, not of the kingdom of Egypt, but of the kingdom of God. And students, you and I have been saved from our sin, from death, from our flesh, and saved to God's kingdom. So when we sing, we sing about what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom, right? There's that Getty song that says, we go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save the name of Jesus. We as Christians are not just saved from sin, but we're saved to go, to follow, to obey. Moses and Israel are singing about these truths. And fifth and finally, they keep on singing. So look again at verse 20. It says, after, after this song, after Moses and Israel has sung this song, and there's a little explanation in verse 19 about why they're singing this song. It says in verse 20, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. That's the same verse as verse one in chapter 15. It's like the refrain, the chorus of this song. So what's happening here? They're repeating their worship. We don't have to just sing a song or give thanks to God or tell of his goodness one time after he's done something, one time after we've called something to mind. No, as the Advent hymn says, we repeat the sounding joy. Over and over, we remind ourselves and one another and the world who God is and what he's done. Now, why do we do this? Why do we sing songs every Sunday? Why is that a part of our corporate worship? Well, there's a lot of reasons why that's a part of our corporate worship, but one of them is because we need to be reminded of all that God has done. We need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. And when we sing these songs that become memorized and written on our hearts, we can repeat these truths to ourselves and to one another and to the Lord over and over again. Why? Because we're forgetful. It's easy for you and me to forget who God is. It's easy for us as we walk through life in this broken world to forget what God has done, to forget what God has saved us from, to forget what he saved us to, to forget what kind of God it is that we serve. And you may think, well, I don't have that problem. I have a great memory. I always think about God's goodness. I always think about who I am in Christ. I always think about, and you would be lying. <laughs> because that person doesn't exist. There's only one person who's done that well. And he was God, so. And how do I know this? Well, let's look at the second section of this, our text for this morning. Not only do God's redeemed respond in worship, but second, we'll see God's redeemed struggle to obey. They struggle to obey. Let's pick it up. Uh, even hearts full of praise. This, this people has just worshiped the Lord. They've just sung praises to his name, talked about who he is and what he's done and what he is going to do. Even hearts that are full of praise are not immune to disobedience. 
My heart could be on fire for the Lord. And if I'm not careful, that will turn to arrogance and pride that will lead to a fall. Israel has just left the place of their redemption. They've just left the Red Sea. They've just left Israel. And now they're about to follow God into the wilderness. We'll see this on verse 22. So they're, they're leaving this, this kind of mountaintop experience, just like we talked about Wednesday night if you were here in equipping groups. God's people don't live on the mountaintop just yet, but they've gotten a taste of it in being delivered through the Red Sea. They're headed that way. They're headed to the promised land. But for now, they're going to wander in the wilderness for a time. And the truth is, we are in the same place. This is why the book of Exodus is so helpful. Because you and I have been delivered from sin. You and I have been saved by grace through faith. You and I have been brought out through the Red Sea or through waters of judgment and salvation, also known as baptism. We signify this when we become believers. But we're not home yet. We're not in the promised land yet. We're, we're out of sin. We're out of slavery. We're out of our oppression. We're through these waters, but we're not home yet. We're not in Canaan yet. So where does that leave us? In the wilderness. So where do you and I live today? Exactly where Israel is about to walk. And let's see how they do. Verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. All right, so what's happened? They've just seen God move. They've just seen God miraculously provide for their safety and their salvation and their redemption. They've just worshiped him as a people of God. Millions of voices singing to him. They go out into the wilderness and three days in, they got a problem. Problem is there's no water. They're, they're following, remember, they're following a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That is the manifest presence of God. They are following his leadership. And yet three days in, they're going, man, he is leading us to death because there's no water here. So what do they do? Instead of trusting the Lord, like we talked about last week, instead of putting their faith in him to give them what they need, to sustain them, even when it seems difficult, they complain to Moses. They complain to God's representative. Israel's life, what they're doing in the wilderness, and what they say they believe, what they just sang on the other side of the Red Sea, are out of sync 
Their life and their belief are out of sync. They say and sing one thing, but then they say and do another thing. And students, that's the reality of being a redeemed sinner. You and I have lives and beliefs that are out of sync. And part of what it means to grow in Christ-likeness, part of what it means to be sanctified is to unite our lives and our beliefs together. That I actually do live out a life that is founded on what I say I believe. If I say I believe something and then live as though I don't even know what that is, my belief may be called into question. We talked about this a little bit last week with fears, right? So say I, if I tell you, man, I am super afraid of spiders. Like I just cannot handle spiders. Spiders terrify me. Uh, little spiders, big spiders, hairy spiders, smooth spiders. I don't want them, right? Poisonous, non-poisonous, doesn't matter. They should, they should, be, they should be killed or burned or burned then killed, Right? So you could hear me say that and you say, okay, Aaron is afraid of spiders. But what if you catch me the next day like catching out a, tar a tarantula just like walking up my arm? And I'm like, ah, cool. What would that make you think? Aaron isn't really afraid of spiders. He, he just said that, but he doesn't, that's not really true. Because why? Because I see him doing the things opposite of what he just said he believed. And students, it's the same way for us. We say, I fear the Lord. I, I love God's word. I am led by the spirit. I love Jesus. But then we live lives that are out of sync with that belief. What does that reveal about our fears? What does that, what does that reveal about our beliefs? That they may not be real, right? Because if I'm really afraid of spiders and I see a big tarantula, I'm not gonna stop and consider should I freak out or not? I'm just gonna respond in fear, right? Because that's the desire of my heart that I do not like spiders and I wanna get away. And part of Christ-likeness, part of becoming sanctified is for us to say with Jesus, we hate sin. We hate disobeying the Lord. We hate not honoring his word or his name. And so when I find myself in a position where that's gonna happen, the natural response of the heart of a mature believer is to recoil back and say, no, that's not for me. Because I hate these things. I don't love them, I hate them. Now the problem that you and I live with in this life is that our flesh is still strong. <laughs> and our flesh does love the things that are against God. It does love the things that God hates. This is Paul's whole frustration in Romans 7. I do what I don't wanna do. I, I don't do that which I want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? So if you find yourself living a kind of life that is out of sync with what you believe, join the club. That is not an anomaly. You are not special. Don't let the devil or your flesh make you believe that you are the only person who wrestles with these kinds of problems. All of us do. But the question is, what are you gonna do with that? Are you gonna go to the Lord? Are you gonna go to his people and ask for help? Or are you going to complain and grumble? Are you gonna harden your heart to what the Lord has for you? 
Because that's what Israel did. Instead of crying to the Lord, they complained to his representative. And yet, the status of God's people has not changed. Their disobedience does not cut them off from being God's people. God is still compassionate, still kind, still present with his people. Israel groaned and complained, and Moses, on their behalf, went to the Lord. And he provided for them. He miraculously made the bitter water that was all around them sweet. And then the Lord gave them a rule. Gave them a rule. Right here in verse 26. If you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Basically, in other words, if you obey me, my people then I won't inflict the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. And why did he inflict plagues on the Egyptians? Because their hearts were hard. Because they did not believe. He's saying, if you will obey me, I will bless you. If you obey me, I will bless you. This is the rule. Obedience leads to blessing. Now notice, there is a vital order in all of this. God first saves a people. He saves them. They were dying, they were oppressed, they were enslaved, and God redeems them. He saves a people, and then he leads them, and then he gives them rules to obey. These rules are not given so that they might be saved. These rules are not given so that God might be their leader. No, these rules are given to a people who have already been saved and are already following God. Obedience does not lead to salvation. They're already saved. But obedience does lead to blessing. It does lead to knowing God, as this text says, as a healer. And he heals the bitter water in spite of their forgetfulness and in spite of their immaturity. So wandering in the wilderness for the next 40 years, as we're gonna see, does not lead to salvation. Wandering around in the desert, learning how to obey the Lord does not lead to them being saved, but it does lead to them being sanctified. It does lead to them being more in line with who God is. It does lead to them becoming followers of God in their life. And before long, the people made it to Elam. After this bitter water event, God leads them to an oasis, a place full of water and trees in the middle of the desert. And this is a sign that they can trust that following God, which includes following his commands, is not to harm them. It's for their good. Following after God's commands, obeying his word, does not lead to your harm, it leads to your good. That doesn't mean that following God's commands will not be painful. It doesn't mean that following God's commands may be always easy. It actually might be very, very hard. But it is for our good. And it will lead to blessing. So even though God's redeemed struggle to obey, thirdly and finally, we see that God's redeemed receive good gifts. Now, we're gonna, not going to read all of chapter 16, but, but here's, the, here's the, the big idea. After Israel's fears 
have been removed by the miraculous defeat of Pharaoh, after they've walked on dry ground by the power of God and after they've worshiped him, and then after they've been provided for in the wilderness, in spite of their immaturity, in spite of their faithlessness, now they are encamped at the oasis of Elam. Everything seems fine. Everything seems good. Surely now they are ready to go. Like surely now Israel is ready to follow God. They're ready to head to the promised land as the obedient, blessed citizens of the Lord, their king. So let's see. Chapter 16, verse one. We're just gonna read the first couple of verses. Then they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the month after they had deported, departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Like if, if you aren't reading ahead, I would encourage you to read ahead as we go through the book of Exodus. But, but hopefully like, are you feeling the frustration? It's like you just figured this out. And like the very next verse, you're like, nah, man, you must want to kill us. Like you saved us here and you saved us here and you provided for us here and you saved us here. You were faithful to us here. You led us here. You miraculously saved us again here. You did this. Man, I, I really just still think you're trying to kill us. And Moses must have spirit-empowered patience because this is insanity. Because again, they go to him and grumble. And again, they say that Egypt is preferable to following Yahweh. It's insanity that living a life of oppression and slavery and bondage of inferiority is better than being led by the God of creation. So God shows himself yet again. He provides manna from heaven in the morning and quail in the evening. Now, why does he do this? Look at verse six. About halfway through, he says, at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. God wants Israel to know that their complaints and their grumbling, and in other words, their whining about their circumstances, about what's going on, is actually a complaint and a confession of distrust to God. When they complain about their circumstances, when they grumble to somebody to say, man, my life is terrible, all of these things are bad, God must not be for my good, what they're saying is, I don't trust God, I don't trust God, I don't trust God. He is not for my good, he is for my harm. So what does he do? In spite of their faithlessness, God gives them manna and quail six days a week. And Moses tells them not to leave any overnight. 
But on the sixth day, they're to gather twice as much because on the seventh day, the Sabbath, they're supposed to rest and eat what they gathered the day before. God will not provide any manna or quail on the seventh day. So only get what you need per day. On the sixth day, get twice as much. Don't let it hang out overnight except for the sixth day. And don't go out to look for food on the seventh day because it's not coming. So what do you think Israel does? Like the exact opposite of everything Moses just says. They don't trust that more will come, so they gather more than what they need and keep some manna overnight. And what happens? The text says that the next morning, the manna bred worms and stank. Moses literally could smell their disobedience. It had rotted the camp and he was angry. But they kept going. They prepared two days worth of food on the sixth day and it held overnight. God provided and preserved. Something that happened the day before is not happening now. But what happens? On the seventh day, they go out on the Sabbath and look for food. And Moses says, look, I just told you that there's not going to be anything provided for you on the seventh day because this Sabbath is given as a rest for you. Look at verse 27. Exodus 16, it says, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Now remember the principle. Remember the rule that God gave in Exodus 15. If you will obey me, I will bless you. If you'll follow my rules and follow my words and keep my statutes, I will bless you. And look at what God is saying here in verse 28. How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, what's going on here? Very quickly, because we need to wrap up. God is providing his people with all that they need. All of their needs, all of what they need to have to be sustained is given by God. Guidance in the wilderness, protection in the wilderness, in the fire and in the cloud, sustenance in the manna and the quail. In God, Israel does not lack. But there's another thing that we don't need to miss here that God gives to his people. He gives his people rest. He gives them rest. In obeying him, in following him, they can rest from their labors on the Sabbath day. Now the book of Hebrews picks this up. And we won't turn there, but in short, God's people are invited to enter into God's rest through Christ. But how does someone enter into the rest of Jesus? How does somebody get a part of that rest? It's by faith. The writer of Hebrews says, do not harden your hearts to trust the Lord. This is the same thing that Exodus is telling us. And Moses clues us in with some foreshadowing at the end of this chapter that it says that they will do this routine for the next 40 years. Now, if you don't know this story, if you're just reading Exodus for the first time, if you've never read the Torah, that's gonna jump out at you. Because what you think is that Moses and God are gonna lead Israel from Elam into the promised land and there they go like ready to roll. Like this is gonna be like a couple of weeks journey and they're gonna be there. But Moses is giving you some foreshadowing by saying for the next 40 years, they will do this. 
They will eat this bread until they enter into the promised land. They will be supernaturally sustained in the wilderness until they make it home on God's timing. And that Sabbath, that seventh day, that day of rest is a reminder every week for 40 years of what's coming. God has promised to set us in his land, that we'll have rest from our labors and our toil once and for all, that we'll be resting in a land flowing with milk and honey, that we will be citizens of a kingdom perfectly ruled by a divine king. That's why God gives the Sabbath, so that Israel can be reminded that this is not home, that this is not what life ought to be like. But for this day out of the week, for this little time of your life, you can get a taste of what's to come. And in the same way, we who have been brought out of slavery into new life in Christ, who have passed through the waters of baptism, now walk in the wilderness, awaiting the day that our Lord comes and takes us home to the true promised land. Not a spit of land between Africa and Asia, but a new creation where our king will reign forever. And until then, you and I are supernaturally sustained by the bread of life. And we're reminded on the seventh day, now the first day, we're reminded on a day of rest what is to come. And although now we don't call it the Sabbath, we call it the Lord's day because we find our rest in Christ. And so we gather together on Sundays like today, you and I gather together as the church to remember, to sing again that for the saints, there awaits for us an everlasting rest. There awaits eternity with him. And on days like today, through worship and service to one another, love to and for one another, we get a taste of what's to come. Our Sundays together are rehearsals for heaven. So don't miss it. Don't squander what this is. As broken and toilsome and incomplete as it is, it should be a reminder for you of what's to come. That we'll sing and worship and rest and live our lives completely aligned to our belief.